Welcome to day three of Paizo's Gen Con Online 2021 seminar stream. We are hosts of the No Direction podcast, directors of the No Direction Network, and Paizo has invited us to host a few of the panels this year, including kicking off today's seminars. My name is Ryan Costello. And I'm Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Param. Param, of the four seminars that we have been, uh, you know, privileged and invited to participate in, this is the one I've been invited, I've been the most excited about. We are joined by Paizo's senior editor for the Pathfinder RPG, Avi Cool. Hello, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Avi. Hey, Avi. It's great to finally meet you. Uh, yes, you've been a uh, cast member of a, one of our actual plays in the No Direction Network, and yet you and I talked for the first time today in the pre-show, which I'm finally, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that's finally out of the way. Yes. So that is one of yeah, the reasons well, I was excited to have you on. But the main reason I'm excited is because we get to talk to an editor. This has long been a goal of ours. We love editors, and we really want to just dive into like the nitty gritty of editing for a role playing game. Awesome. I don't think I've ever heard someone say, I I don't know if I've ever heard someone say, we love editors so enthusiastically. So that (laughs) already made my day. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. I think that you could tell somebody's level of understanding of how tabletop role-playing game publishing works based on how they might summarize what the editor does. If somebody just thinks it's Mm -hmm. like the, the typo finder, they don't get it. If they understand that the editor is like the the launching pad that takes the creative and takes the technical and like makes sure that it works exactly as intended and and like flows and everything, uh, those are the people that really understand that like that's how tabletop role playing game works. That's why the editor is so important to the industry. Right. In fact, one of the ways I, I understood how important an editor was was when tabletop luminary Owen Casey Stevens told me that an editor was someone you hire to make you sound smarter. Is that accurate? <laughs> a lot of the developers say that. And I, I I feel like me saying, yes, that's accurate, uh, does them a disservice <laughs> because they're incredibly <laughs> smart and incredibly talented in their own right. But it we do give them uh, the little cosmetic and also playability boost um, to have them uh, represented at their best. And how how would you describe your day to day? What is the average day for you as an editor at Paizo for Pathfinder? Yeah, so the first thing I'll do in the morning is generally there's a huge backlog of things that I have to read from various channels to make sure I know what's going on with where all the products are at any given time, because in case you haven't noticed, Paizo puts out an absolutely enormous number of books. <laughs> and uh, part of being an editor is in at Paizo specifically is in some ways being a project manager, because the project managers do amazing work. But if I'm not keeping track of where all these projects are, then things are going to fall through the cracks. And there's a real risk of that. So I have to every day make sure I know where all the Pathfinder products are in their life cycle, whether they're ready for us to edit, if they are in editing, how soon they're due, and where the other editors are um, working on them. And then once I kind of, and that can take me like up to an hour sometimes. Um, And once I have that all taken care of, um, I, not not on a normal day, it'll take me an hour on a Monday, but I don't, uh, 
I don't want to spend an hour doing admin tasks every morning. That would be <laughs> that would be a nightmare. But uh, once I get all that figured out, I, I generally am working on uh, one main project at any given time. It's often the, whatever project I'm editing lead on, but sometimes it's just whatever Pathfinder project is in uh, is is coming up the the pipeline. And I will spend most of the day editing one thing. It'll take uh, weeks and weeks and weeks to edit a single book. Um, and part of that is actually going through and editing. Part of it is communicating with the developers. Every time I finish a pass of a section, I have a list of questions for the developers or the designers. And that can be a really fun part of the job, actually, getting to talk with them as we go through our questions and uh, find answers to problems. And then um, we always have our actual editing separate from what we enter into the final files in uh, InCopy, which is what we use to um, to make text changes to our books, because we want to make sure that we're not losing any work or introducing errors into the final file. So that is a separate part of the process as well. This means that editing at Paizo is way slower than like when I've edited as a freelancer for um, like for uh, traditional books. Uh, that is a much quicker process because you're really doing everything streamlined in one. You're entering your changes into a Word document or a PDF. You're adding your questions for the author to review at the end. So you're not going through piece by piece and going through questions. Um, so it's definitely a really labor intensive process, but a really intellectually rewarding process. That's what so I do every day. <laughs> as gamers, Param and I have, of course, read the rule books. And when you're reading it as a gamer, it it takes a while to get through all the content. We also review yes. the books, and so that requires an additional level of uh, attention to detail. What you're doing is like five levels more attention to detail to every <laughs> single page and every single word on those pages. It is incredible just to think of like how focused your mind must be to just be catching all the things that you could be potentially catching. It can be a real struggle on days where like I have ADHD, and on some days it's just like, it's, it can be hard to get your brain to focus to that level because you're you're right. It takes a huge amount of focus to be able to do this kind of work. So that's one of my uh, like daily things I have to strategize is how am I going to be able to maintain this high level of concentration for eight hours today? Like I go on a short walk in the middle of the day, generally at around like half with the halfway point. Uh, you got to take breaks or else it's just like, if you try to push through it, for me personally, I won't speak for everyone else. For me personally, if I try to just push through it and work uninterrupted for eight hours, it's literally impossible. There's just too high of a level of focus to do that. Now, when you get a book like Secrets of Magic, which starts with a lot of lore and then a lot of diagrams and switching in tones from like, this is something that's supposed to sound very academic. This is supposed to sound very casual. This is just supposed to sound very occult. And then you get into rules. Like, how do you, how do you parse out all of the different voices a single book can have? I don't generally try to edit lore and rules um, at the same time, unless they're like integrated in a minor rules section, like the Lost Omen books will have like a few rules options kind of sprinkled in and that is manageable. But something like Secrets of Magic, um, I spent about three weeks doing nothing but editing the spells. And that was wow. pretty much all I did. 
And because there's, okay, there's so many of them, first off, <laughs> but I had to stay in that headspace and I couldn't really uh, go back and forth from section to section because I needed to be in the place, the place in my mind in which I can edit spells, which is one of the most challenging things to edit because you need to be able to think as you're editing each spell, how would I play this? And then be able to, each one is only a couple hundred words. So you have to have that conversation with yourself like seven eight times on a single page. <laughs> so it's a pretty demanding uh, kind of thing to edit. I'm not going to edit a few pages of that and then go edit one of the lore treatises because it's going to totally throw me out of that headspace. This must this require a- In chat says, how will players break this? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> So this must require a lot of very specialized skills. Like there, like a, a tabletop editor is so much different in my brain than the same types of editors I would think of in my my world of academia. Because you're not only having mm -hmm. to do rules and technical and and lore and prose, but also understanding the apostrophes in aboleth names and how on earth a magic spell needs to be formatted like is there literally just like a handful of of people that have this talent set and how did you even get it uh yes there's a very small number of people who have this skill set um and there are lots of great editors out there who don't know at all how to edit tabletop games and have to learn on the job is often how it works um so for me I had a, a little bit of editing experience uh, through internships. And uh, I was in college trying to figure out how to become an editor. So I did um, some work for a like um, equivalent to Sparknotes, except online uh, only kind of service. I did some work for them. I did some work for uh, Fantagraphics Books, which was actually an amazing opportunity. That is probably the reason I even got an interview at Paizo. And uh, when I started off at Paizo, I was a temp. I was not a full-time editor right off the bat because I didn't have very much experience. And I really learned on the job and learned from the really amazing people who were already there. Like Judy Bauer and Chris Carey are not people who you'll see with 100,000 followers on Twitter, but they are two of the most amazing editors that I've ever met. And I just, and um, the other person I really learned a lot from was Adrian Eng, who is now at the Pokemon Company. And I just really watched them work and the other thing we like to do is when, and we can't really do this anymore to, in the same way, we have to do it digitally, but we used to print out big uh, like spreads um, from the book right before it went into approvals. And we would have two editors crammed together at a desk with Sharpies, just going through looking for formatting errors mainly and looking for other things that the editors are really tuned into. And I would do that with Adrian or with Chris or with whoever, and I would watch them and I would watch what they were doing. And at first I couldn't really spot any of those things myself. So I, it was it was more training than anything at the beginning. And that was one of the most helpful things was just watching experts who really understand how this works and uh, learning what they do and learning to see the things that they see. 
Judy Bauer is one of the people that opened my eyes to how important an editor is. She has an anecdote about she was editing a campaign setting book and she had to go to the author and be like, do you realize the only female characters in here are either dead or prostitutes? And yep. it was like, that's a problem. And that is a problem that an editor, specifically an editor of The Talent of Judy and from her perspective, would catch. And it's it literally changes the world of Galarian. Yes. Judy is incredible. She is my mentor and my hero. Like a lot of the early, the earliest pushes um, from the editors for diversity and equity and inclusion, a lot of those come from Judy. She is now managing editor for Dungeons and Dragons and uh, she has earned that a million times over, but I miss her. <laughs> I do miss working with her on a daily basis. So a lot of the things that you love about Pathfinder, you love because of Judy. And this is why we say that the editors are some of the unsung heroes, because literally that is one of the things that first caught my attention about Pathfinder and the setting and really got me into it beyond yeah. just fandom. Mm -hmm. Now, I, Recently, I was listening uh, to Waypoint uh, Radio, one of my favorite podcasts uh, they, for, for games journalism, and they were complimenting one of their freelancers because, quote unquote, they take notes well and how important that was to have as a quality for a freelancer. When you're working with freelancers and other writers, what, how can they work well with an editor and what should they keep in mind if, say, somebody from the audience here gets hired to do a piece and then they need to start working with you? Um, I love working with our freelancers and I think the real only, uh, the only things that a freelancer really needs to look out for are making sure they're receptive to feedback and just being, you know, chill and respectful. But, uh, we have a great set of freelancers and the ones who, uh, I really enjoy working with, which is almost all of them are the ones who are open to feedback and have really creative ideas, can implement them in creative ways. And then when you give them feedback, they learn from it and implement it in their next work. That is huge. That will go, you have no idea how many freelancers who put down their first project. Uh, and it was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. It's got a lot of work to do, but I see how it improved between the starting point and the finish point. And that specifically is what gets them their next gig, is that you can see they implemented your feedback, um, both the developer and the editor's feedback, but mostly the developers at that stage. Um, and then they turned in their final work incorporating that. That is the number one way to get asked back to do more freelance work for Paizo. So there's the famous triangle of talent where it's fast, good, easy to work with. You're saying easy to work with is one of the two that you always take? Yes. Yes. I mean, fast is great. Good is very important for sure. <laughs> but, <laughs> and you know, if you can't turn, uh, if you're consistently turning in your, your stuff two months late, then obviously good and easy to work with are not going to be enough. But, um, and we also do have some amount of flexibility, not a huge amount, but some amount of flexibility with deadlines, as long as you communicate in advance so the developer can schedule that in. So if a month before the deadline, you're like, hey, I foresee this taking me another week, another two weeks, and you tell the developer, uh, then we can the developer can talk to the editor about it, can talk to the project manager about it, and we can make it work. Those are communication is huge. Communication, incorporating feedback, and just being like a pleasant person to talk with, 
those are huge, huge, huge things. Over the weekend, uh, Aaron from Paizo was collecting a lot of the questions from Discord for you, and we're going to go into a couple of those now. One of them is, what is the most rewarding part of editing for you? Oh, when uh, when something comes out and people love it. That's that's the best feeling is like when you poured your heart and soul into a book and then it comes out and people fall in love with it is just the best feeling in the world, uh, especially something that you worked really, really hard on and worked really closely with uh, like the developer on or the designer on. I think those are some of the most rewarding ones are like you worked as a team on this and turned it into something really special. Um that's by far the most rewarding part about being an editor on on these books. Do any specific examples come to mind that it was like you really transformed this? Uh, Lost Omens Ancestry Guide is a great example of like I worked closely with the developers throughout that entire book. Um, I almost ed edited every single page, not quite, but almost. And we had amazing conversations throughout the course of that book um, as a team with Eleanor and Luis and Mark Seifter. And uh, then when the book came out, oh my God, what an amazing reception that book has gotten. And I was just over the moon about that because I love it so much. But sometimes people will not like a book as much, not because it's a bad book, but because they had expectations of it being something that it was not. And that can be that can be pretty sad sometimes. Because, uh, you know, like everyone goes in with their expectations and that's fine. But when something comes out and it does appear to be exactly what people want and they're happy with it and happy with how it works and that it plays well, like that's awesome so ancestry guide was a, a shining example of of that we haven't really talked about your play experience how much pathfinder were you playing before you got this job and how much do you play now yeah um i was playing uh pathfinder on a bi-weekly basis um i had two different adventure path groups um that i was in as a player not as a gm um, and I was playing both Mummy's Mask and Shattered Star around the time that I started working at Paizo. Um, now, those groups were both in person, so sadly, they have not really been able to handle the pandemic, and we will get together again someday. But now my main game is um, actually the podcast I do for No Direction, uh, Valiant, GM'd by Luis Loza, and that we play once a month. Um, and it is super fun. I wish I had more uh, time and energy to play more games. And I do occasionally play one shots with people, but I would love to have like another AP group going at some point. That's one of my goals. I cannot believe you said bi-weekly. That is one of the words I hate so much because it means two <laughs> very different things. It I'm so sorry. Confusion. I'm so sorry. Uh, twice a month is what that meant. In, See, in I thought you were saying grade. twice a week. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Every other week. Yeah, we would alternate um, between between uh, APs in that group. We have a question from chat. Corey Marie 21 wants to know what AP you would want to play in. Uh, oh, man. For first edition, the one that I want to play most right now is Skull and Shackles. And we were just about to start a game of that uh, before the pandemic hit. So hopefully that will happen at some point. 
And then for second edition, oh, I want to play Strength of Thousands so bad. It's so good. I have not gotten to read all six volumes cover to cover, but what I have read, uh, which is probably about half the word count, has been so freaking cool. Like just the stories that it's telling are like really, really engaging in how they incorporate like um, influence systems with uh, exploration, with uh, the classroom dynamics, with the combat, with the intrigue. Um, it's it's so much fun to read. And I imagine it's going to be extremely fun to play. And there's room for really wild characters as well, which makes it a little extra special. Now, that that actually uh, points something out for me. When we interview uh, other uh, workers at Paizo, other developers, writers, freelancers, uh, oftentimes they're like really siloed into like the, the aspect that they're working on and kept so busy that they that they usually that they don't always know everything that's going on with everything else at Paizo. But you really are like deeply involved in just about everything Paizo puts out, right? Yes, uh, which can be ridiculous sometimes. <laughs> uh, I don't read everything because I am one person and that would be impossible, but I read a lot of different books from different product lines as part of my work. So I generally know what's going on in organized play. I know what's going on in the APs. I know what's going on with the hardcovers. I know what's going on with uh, Lost Omens and the, um, and the rules hardcovers. So, um, and even if I'm not actively working on something, I try to stay aware of what's happening because being uh, well-versed in both what's appearing in other books and in canon in general is really important for catching errors. And we had a moment, um, I mentioned this briefly on the Lost Omens panel yesterday, but Grand Bazaar and Secrets of Magic had overlap in their uh, development window. And during that overlap, I realized, oh, hey, I just saw the, I was just talking to Logan about what tattoos are going to look like in Secrets of Magic. I don't think he knows that I put tattoos in Grand Bazaar and I don't think they match in how we're presenting them in these two different books. So um, like, just trying to be aware of what's going on can help find inconsistencies like that, that otherwise might be falling through the cracks. And then also canon issues. Like if there are, if one uh, writer does not know all the things that are going on in canon, they can introduce errors that way, which is normal because most people don't know everything that's going on in the canon at any moment. So yeah, I do my best. I can't do everything because that would be impossible. But I, I do try to stay really well versed and also have to be just because of the kind of wide variety of material that I'm editing. So how big is the editor pool? There are seven full-time editors and we currently have uh, three contractors who are here to help us with the enormous extra burden that is Kingmaker, which is huge. It's so huge. It's comedically huge. So yeah, we had to bring in a bunch of extra help um, to uh, work on that. And I'm hoping that over time we can bring those contractors on as full-time employees uh as time goes by it's not going to happen immediately but they've been awesome and uh we've been able to 
do some really great training with them as well while they've been contractors and helping us. Uh, so yeah, we have approximately 10 people on the team, but only seven of those people are full-time. And only seven, it's a, it's a good number. It could be 10 full-time and I would be happy. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of words to edit. Uh, Eric Mona introduced the uh, Pathfinder Starfinder Infinity, which will be fan-directed uh, content. And it'll be a lot of people's first opportunity to work in the Paizo worlds. And I don't think a lot of them have an eye for how they're going to edit their own content between concept and when they're actually going to publish it. So uh, I guess this is a two-part question. One, those uh, part-time editors you were talking about, do you think they'd be available to uh, work with some of the Infinity authors? And two, what advice do you have for any Infinity authors to do what an editor does before they submit something? Yeah, um, our, our, our contract editors are actually working a, like, full-time workload there um, while they are on the temporary contract. So I don't know how much extra time they have, but uh, they are, a lot of them are freelancers as well. And there are a variety of um, editors who do freelance as well in the Pathfinder world. Um, so definitely if you're looking for um, hiring a freelance editor for, uh, for infinite, I would, I would uh, post that on Twitter actually is probably the, your best place of finding that because Twitter is the hub of um, the Pathfinder community really in terms of the professionals. Um, we're almost all on Twitter. So that would be, if you're looking for someone, keep in mind that editors deserve fair wages. So if you're not prepared to pay for it, then don't bother. <laughs> but um, if you can't afford to hire someone, which is totally legit, my advice for um, preparing your own work is do all of the writing work and all of the development work, let it sit for a few days to a week, and then uh, go through, give it a thorough proofread, and also compare how you format things to an existing book. So um, especially like the Game Mastery Guide and the more recent, um, the more recent bestiaries, are a really good place to look for how we format things. If you have a first printing core rulebook that is not up to date, the second uh, or the third printing will be coming out soon. And also we've got um, upcoming reprints of a few more books coming out soon, but the GMG and like Bestiary 3 are gonna be books that will be really helpful to have on hand. And you do wanna do the, your best to make it match because um, someone who spends a lot of time reading these books can probably tell if it doesn't really look like how we format things in the professional books. So yeah, giving yourself space between your writing and your editing and then comparing it to what we already have published, those would be my tips for making your infinite material look super polished. I do hate to admit it, but as a professional reviewer, when I am reviewing a third party material, I will ding it if it doesn't match the uh, correct stylings that the system is by. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is something that I pay attention to because I can't turn that part of my brain off. <laughs> Some people are not <laughs> gonna care as much, but for me, when I'm looking at a third party uh, product, I look at the words 
the words are first and foremost. But in terms of like, oh, is this someone we would want to hire? The closer your material looks to um, how we format and how we present information in our actual books, it's going to go a long way in terms of us thinking like, do you have what it takes to actually be brought on as a Paizo freelancer without putting an undue amount of work on the developer and the editor's shoulders, because that's what it translates to. If you don't do that work as a freelancer, it creates more work for people further down the line and more work is not what we want. (laughs) So yeah, putting that effort in is really appreciated, especially if the purpose of you publishing this is to establish establish yourself as a potential freelancer. Can you give us an example? PR is in chat and he's saying note to self, help contact freelancers to infinite publishers via discord. Hey. Yay. Now I uh, am curious, do you have any uh, examples of something that you can talk about? Cause I understand you all live two years in the future uh, yes. <laughs> of something that, of, of something that you've edited like uh, in, in how you've, taken something and done some work to make it fit or better for publication. Ooh, let me think for a second. I mean, this is part of playtesting as well, but uh, a, a lot of, like I can think Magus is something that we did. I worked very closely with the designers on to uh, figure out a lot of the issues that the playtest version of that class had. Uh, some of which like we noticed things that were confusing before the playtest even happened. And then we decided to put them out into the world to see how the fans reacted to them. And a lot of the time the fans noticed the same things that you do. And then you go, okay, well, this is actionable and we can change this. So I, I feel like that was a pretty close working relationship um, in terms of specific. Oh, Adventure paths are always going to be something that we work really closely with the developers on in terms of the narrative, because it's really easy for a developer to, or an author to do something that, you know, they don't really mean to and how it it can accidentally come off in ways that they don't intend. So that happens in every, every adventure path, really. Like that's kind of a, just part of the process. And uh, I don't want to like call individual developers or authors out. So I hesitate to like specify like, oh, I changed this because it was problematic. You know, it's like, (laughs) it's not something people do intentionally. (laughs) And we have a large amount of grace for that. We're all writers as well, uh, pretty much. I think almost everybody on the editing team, if not everybody is also a writer. So we, we all understand that like, people make mistakes and they are not made out of malice. Um, Yeah. The, the, Oh, one of the things that I did that was not a loaded or problematic issue was the structuring of um, the incarnate spells and secrets of magic was totally different when it came over to editing. And uh, Logan and I are like, 
oh my God, how do we make this information presentable? Because there's so many different headings within a single um, a single spell. And that's not something readers think about. You don't think about headings. But headings are super important because they determine how easy it is to gather information within any given material. So, you know, the incarnate spells have those arrive headings and the depart headings. And then there are a bunch of different stats within that as well. And we completely reworked how those um, are presented. And that doesn't sound glamorous at all. But then when the spells go out into the world and people understand how they're supposed to work, <laughs> that is huge. So uh, little things that may not sound super, uh, super special to uh, the general public actually are uh, very satisfying to really get right. And you'll see um, also some formatting choices in the upcoming playtest uh, for Dark Archive that represent that kind of. Um, if you if you see some uh, interesting heading choices and you go, oh, uh, this helps present the information. Just think about an editor. <laughs> I hate to admit it, I probably will not notice interesting heading choices, <laughs> but I will probably appreciate they're there unknowingly. Exactly. If you understand the presentation of the information, that's all I care about. <laughs> that's super important. I, that's one of the important things to me. I am constantly giving investor bloggers to use headings correctly, so I very much appreciate that. that oh, much. good. Good. I'm glad. Uh, headings are how you signpost to a reader what they're going to be reading next. And that may not sound like a lot, but that takes a huge amount of cognitive load off of the reader because attempting to parse things when they're all just lumped together uh, makes it way harder mentally to uh, understand what you're looking at. So when you're doing your uh, Pathfinder or Starfinder Infinite, that's also something to think about is how you use headings. And I would really take a, a close look at the books we have published, look at how we use headings and think whether they're above a paragraph or the bold text that runs into the paragraph. Um, those are both t different types of headings and they're both extremely important. Little so nitty gritty a things. Lot, is a lot of your work then, especially with the rules con uh, content to like reduce possible confusion at the table? So much of it. Um, basically my philosophy when I'm editing rules is if I'm confused, the reader will be confused. And if it takes me multiple times to read a spell or a feat or a class feature in order to understand what it does, that's not acceptable. So, uh, it's generally just an issue of it made sense in the designer or developer's head, but the flow of information isn't totally sound, uh, which is just one of the things that happens when you write is your brain thought of it one way because you already in your brain know how it works, but the reader doesn't know how it works and they have to figure it out from what you wrote and they don't have anything else to go on but what you wrote. So uh, that is one of the number one things I'm looking at when I'm editing rules material. Can you understand it on the first read? and without having to really scratch your head about what exactly it means. A lot of shout outs to heading and proper heading etiquette in chat. <laughs> yeah. uh, Lunar Sloth and Elf Tyro both work in uh, UI. 
And so nice. they really appreciate it. And Arcane Mark, uh, so Mark Seifter is saying that this doesn't just go for rule books. The ordering of information in adventures makes a huge difference. And editors yes. are masters of this. Oh, thank you, Mark. Mark's the best. <laughs> Mark is the best. And he's totally right. <laughs> Another question from Discord that was collected for us. What are some weird mm -hmm. little facts about the editing process or publishing that you find interesting? Ooh, good question. I guess besides headings. Uh, yeah, besides headings. Oh, wait a second. Sorry, Linda, not Mark. She's uh, using the Arcane Mark account. Oh, was it Linda? Yeah, she's just correct. Oh, okay. Hi, Linda. Linda's the best as well. Yes. Also the best. Um, so one of the things that we that is interesting about our process is probably we have uh, a variety of digital tools that we use um, to find common issues. So like we have a, a tool that we run that can find outdated terms from like whether they're from playtests or from uh, the first edition and we will run these and that takes a huge amount of cognitive load i talk about cognitive load a lot because it's huge in doing a, a work uh, a job that's as mentally intense as mine um we can run these tools in in copy that will find like any um like intimidate versus intimidation is a great <laughs> example of like that's even different between pathfinder and starfinder um the name of that skill and so you can use these tools to help, especially for people who go back and forth between Pathfinder and Starfinder to help find the places that those don't match up. Starfinder, since it's based on first edition Pathfinder, is a totally different game with a totally different language than uh, Pathfinder second edition. So um, I also have a tool that I use um, that flags like common problematic terms that may show up in work unintentionally um or just like you know through through just like subconscious bias which is once again normal and happens so like words like savage we try to avoid and one of the things that i'll do is i will just run a um this this tool that will find all of these red flag words and i'll go through and i'll judge them all in context to say like oh is this like talking about an animal making a savage like roar or something like that and that's going to be you know like that's probably fine though i might change it if i want to you know it depends on the, the context or is it talking about a person and in that case we are going to want to recast it to avoid uh, negative stereotypes so the, um, using technology is a huge part of our tool set. And that's one of the things that maybe people don't know that editors do is using technology to help assist us in things that would um, otherwise take a much more manual and uh, mental load heavy uh, approach. So I'm glad you brought up Savage because that is the word that I use more than I like and have struggled to replace. So can you give me some advice on ways to work around that? ferocious vicious uh brutal uh, those are all words that we use commonly like you know if you're talking about an orc warlord you know they probably are brutal and that is a perfectly appropriate word depending on like the context of that specific story like even uh like the matanji orcs in the muangi expanse are 100 good 
but they are brutal. They are ferocious warriors, but we do not want to call them savage because that word has such loaded racial connotations uh, that we never want to use that to uh, describe people. And, you know, the word people is really uh, broad in Pathfinder and Starfinder, especially Starfinder, where people can mean like squid so or snail person. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's it's definitely helpful to be able to identify, like, I have a long list of terms that I try to um, avoid and encourage other people to avoid, not because we're being pedantic, but because it's important to think about the context in which you use the words that you're putting into print, not just for your own writing, but to be read by tens of thousands of people. And we want to make sure that the words we're using are both engaging, have storytelling merit, and are not going to be alienating to our readers or spreading uh, false or negative stereotypes. Corey Marie twenty one in chat is wondering if this is a tool that someone can buy the the like word finder you're describing. Oh, it is a script that we run in InCopy, so it is not actually a piece of software. Um, InCopy has uh, programmers are going to be familiar with Grep, uh, which I honestly don't know what it stands for. <laughs> so it's a specific type of search tool that you can use in um, various software and InCopy is one of them that uh, you can search for a huge amount of terms at once and it'll flag all these different terms at once. You can build scripts in Microsoft Word to do the exact same thing. And if you look online, uh, you can search for um, the term that you'd use in Microsoft Word is a macro. And uh, you can find tutorials online for building macros. And those are going to be your friend if you're looking to do this kind of automated um, editing. And it's a supplement, you know, it doesn't replace editing by any means, but uh, to supplement your editing with tools like that, um, I would just Google um, tutorials for building macros in Word. And there are also places where uh, people make their own macros and will upload them online uh, for people to use as well. Uh, I too have been warned the about wizard? the Daw Wizard. Yes, we were both <laughs> <went to> Daw <laughs> Wizard. That's okay. This is why you never, ever, 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 ever press change all. You never press change all. It is, it is the enemy. It is a surefire way to insert errors into your manuscript. Even if you think that you have thought of all the contingencies that would prevent change all from introducing errors, you haven't. You need to do it manually. It takes more time, but just press next and press next and press next. And if you don't end up having any places that it wouldn't introduce an error, then congratulations. Uh, you can be happy for this time, but it's, yeah, change all is the danger button. I never ever use it unless it's, it's like something like change. I don't, I don't even want to use an example. There's no examples because <laughs> <laughs> even if it's changing like the wrong font, it can still affect copy fit. So if I press change all and I'm changing the font, it'll affect the size of the text, even in really minute ways. And so I could accidentally be making, uh, bumping a line of text off the page without even noticing it. So never, never press change all. 
We are coming close to the end of our hour. So there is something I want to talk about, and that is Dark Archive was announced as the hardcover that's coming out uh, for the Pathfinder role-playing game line after Book of the Dead. And uh, we know the two classes that we will be playtesting starting on Monday, we as in the players, and uh, one of which, the Thaumaturge, has a lot of really positive reaction and which you have a personal connection to. Yes, so I am super excited to announce that I am writing the Thaumaturge. Um, I got to concept the character and uh, have Wayne Reynolds do his amazing illustration off of my concept. And then I will be writing the Meet the Iconic uh, story when that comes out, the fiction for that. You'll be able to see very soon a blurb about the backstory of this character in the vaguest sense. So um, look on the Paizo blog. That should be going up with the playtest. And um, yeah, I, I'm so happy that people like this character already because it was a, a big responsibility, like putting the first non-binary iconic into the world. I wanted to make sure that it was not going to be a character that kind of fell into a lot of the pitfalls of um, non-binary representation. When you see non-binary characters in the world, they tend to look a certain way. They tend to be young and tend to be wafy. And um, I and like a kind of stereotypical version of androgyny, and I wanted to not lean into that at all. I wanted this character to be rugged. I wanted them to be stocky, and I wanted them to be older, and to show that like, hey, there is not one way to be non-binary. So the fact that people are responding to that already, even though they don't know anything about the character other than the fact that they use they, them pronouns and are a thaumaturge is so happy. It's so happy for me. So I can't wait for people to find out more. You're getting a whole bunch of purple hearts from chat. Uh, Lunar Sloth specifically is saying that they feel like they were made for them. Oh, thank you, everyone. (laughs) It makes me so happy. So I know you don't want to scoop the Paizo blog that's going to be posting some information yes. about them on Monday. But uh, when you were approaching this, how did you how did you approach it? How did you uh, carve the niche? How did you find the direction you wanted to go with this character? Um, I read a lot of our existing iconics. Um, I went through and like both first edition and second edition iconics. I wanted to make sure there was little to no conceptual overlap both in terms of their appearance and their backstory. So uh, especially with the occultist, since this class is kind of like the, uh, it's it's not replacing the occultist in the most literal sense of that term, uh, but it is like the, it's going to be our uh, second edition reimagining of the occultist. So I didn't want there to be any overlap between their character history and um, I also wanted to avoid, you know, overlap with some of the other kind of grim and gritty characters like uh, Celtiel, who uh, is obviously a super grim character. I didn't want to go that dark um, and I didn't want to have any kind of uh, story beats that were the same as his. So that was the main preparation I did. And then I did a bunch of notes and uh, like bulleted lists of ideas. Um, I ran them by James Case and also eventually James Jacobs, trying to identify pitfalls and places where it could introduce uh, issues that we don't want. Like the character has to be 
playable at first level has to make sense as a first level character. So we don't want this character to be like, oh, and also uh, I slew, uh, you know, a, a 20th level Lenorm or whatever, uh, because that's <laughs> not going to be realistic <laughs> when you get this first level pregen. So that was another consideration. And James Jacobs was extremely helpful in that department. He really helped me dial in exactly what this character needs to be capable of to make sense as an iconic. So Paizo PR is in chat saying, have you seen Bowman on these seminars? You can scoop a bit, LOL. Oh man, I don't know. I, I've been too busy. I haven't had a chance to watch any of these because I have been working every second that I'm not on a panel. So no, does anybody want to tell me what he's what he's said? Or just is oh, this in general, he's, he's been dropping? It's been in general. He's been ending seminars with, I want more spoilers, and then making everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I heard Logan spoiled the end of Jason's adventure in Book of the Dead. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, I'm not going to spoil anyone else's stuff. <laughs> <laughs> something that was brought up in a sem previous seminar and touches on something you just said about the difference between the occultist and the thaumaturge in that they yes. both uh, draw from the same inspiration, but mechanically go in very different directions. Yeah. So something, uh, the inspiration that we were talking about for thaumaturge is really three main characters. We're talking Van Helsing, uh, John Constantine and Harry Dresden are our three kind of inspiration characters for the thaumaturge and those uh so that should give you a bit of insight into how this character and this class operates it's using uh, a variety of occult tools instead of being someone who casts spells from your innate occult powers so anybody can be a thaumaturge if you study uh, you don't need any innate magical abilities. It's um, And so the route that I took for the iconic is this is someone who learned these skills out of a drive for survival. They don't have a tragic backstory, but they come from difficult a difficult upbringing, a difficult origin in a difficult land. Uh, uh, and so they had to teach themselves these occult kind of skills in order to survive in a harsh reality. And I think that's all that I will spill for now. Now, James Case is in chat encouraging you to drop the name. Okay, okay. If James told me to do it, then I will do it. Uh, their name is Mios, which is spelled M-I-O-S. Is there significance to the why you went with that name? Um, I, so the character, okay, I will spoil one more thing. The character is from Ustalov and I Ooh. didn't want to have a, uh, a name that was really obviously Slavic, but I wanted to have a bit of Slavic influence in there as well. So Mios is kind of a bastardization of, uh, Milos or Milos. Uh, which is an Eastern European name. So that was that that was where I came from with that. I wanted it to have for people in the know, maybe they could see a little bit of that root um, without it actually just being um, like I took a real world Slavic name or a real world Slavic preface or suffix. And um, 
a prefix, not preface, <laughs> words, uh, prefix or suffix, and then put it onto a fantasy syllable that doesn't mean anything. So that was that was where I went with that. All right, one last comment from Chat Lunar Sloth is in it. all caps saying, Avi, I can only get so excited. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I do try to put a lot of thought into these things because this is such an amazing opportunity to uh, get to write an iconic, like, holy crap, how many people in the world have gotten to write an iconic for a game the size of Pathfinder? And uh, it's just a really incredible privilege, and I want to do it justice. I think we're about ready to wrap things up. We've got a little more yeah. than five minutes left. Uh, Avi, do you want to tell people where people can find you on social media and around, around, the, yes. world, around the internet? Yeah, <laughs> around the world. So the only social media that I use is uh, Twitter, which is uh, at Legalize Goblins, which you can see um, <laughs> on the screen there. Yeah, that's, that's my Twitter handle. Uh, that came to me late at night, uh, <laughs> and I, I've stuck with it. So on Twitter, you can see me talking about games, uh, boosting other people's games, and also talking about bears because I have uh, undying love for bears and specifically the bears of the Fat Bear Week uh, fame who are at Katmai National Park. Um, this has been my therapy during the pandemic is watching these bears obsessively. So if you want to talk about games, want to see stuff about games, and also want to see stuff about bears, which I have been told people enjoy. Uh, you can find me at Legalized Goblins on Twitter. So there was one question we, that was curated from Discord that I did not ask you because I didn't understand it. It was favorite bear <laughs> moment of the season. Now I understand. <laughs> you know, you've got a minute to oh answer my God. that if you have an answer. If you can narrow uh, down all the bear moments of the season to one that stood out as the best. Yes. My favorite bear moment of the season, I'll talk about Otis, who is a fan favorite. Otis is a very, very old bear. He's like 26 years old, approximately, and he has arthritis and he's missing a bunch of teeth, but he is extremely beloved because he was um, a... He's, he's a very chill bear. He fishes by just kind of staring into the water he moves very slowly um and he when he arrived this year um he was super super late to get to the falls because he is very old and arthritic and it took him a long time to get from his den to the falls where the salmon are and so the literally a couple hours before otis showed up the rangers said since Otis isn't here yet, he's probably deceased. And then Otis appeared as if to say, uh, reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated <laughs> and just sauntered onto the screen and the entire chat just blew up and it crashed the website's chat feature on explore.org. So that was my number one bear moment of the season. Thank you for that fantastic question. <laughs> yeah, what a lovely note to end on. So uh, yes. we're going to be wrapping up right now. In about five minutes, we're going to be back uh, for another interview. So Param and I will be back with uh, Jenny Jarzabski. We're going to be talking about Starfinder actual play. And then at three o'clock uh, Eastern, noon Pacific, it will be telling tales about Pathfinder, sorry, Paizo Adventure Paths. 
4 p.m. Uh, Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, Industry Spotlight, Freelancing for Paizo. I'm feeling like, I, th I think I've got the right schedule. Some of this is sounding familiar from yesterday, but I think this is the right schedule. I'm just going to go ahead. Yeah, uh, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, Ask Paizo Anything Pathfinder. 6 p.m. slash 3 p.m. is the Starfinder edition. Uh, 7 p.m. for Pacific, we have Pathfinder One-Shot, Sundered Waves, live play by Penny for a Tale. That's Pathfinder 2nd Edition actual play. It'll be playing for four hours. And then 11 p.m. tonight, Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific, <laughs> Heck Nights in Space, a Starfinder live play by Dungeon Dive Bar. <laughs> of all the live plays, the Heck Nights in Space is the one that I have definitely wanted to know more about. So uh, that is it for uh, what you can expect from Saturday. That is it for us. Avi, thank you once again. This was this flew by, but also feels like it was really dense with content. It was one of my favorite styles of interviews. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure. Take care, everybody. Bye.